Welcome everyone to this episode of the Economic Development Radio. This podcast is produced by Grotmap Infonomics. My name is Togozane Twala. I'm the CEO of Grotmap Infonomics and the host of the Economic Development Radio podcast. We aim to use this particular podcast to assist our listeners in terms of having access to thought leadership conversations, information that you can use in terms of improving decision making in your own organization. We are very blessed today to have Professor Johann Stein. Uh, he has given me the permission to say I can refer to him as Johann, but I would still like to just acknowledge as we start that he is a professor and he's one of the leading you know, experts uh, in the field of artificial intelligence, something that I think all of us need to start paying attention to because you find that in one way or the other impacts on you whether from a business point of view or in terms of just your social life generally. Johan, welcome uh, into this particular episode of the Economic Development Radio. Zani, thank you for inviting me. I've uh, been spying on your website, listening to some of your other podcasts, and I think you and the team are really doing a great job. Thank you so much for that particular compliment. But just before we get into our interview, I always say to all our guests, you know, we just want to get to know you as a person. Please just tell us a bit about yourself, you know, in terms of probably where you grew up and, and some maybe of your key milestones in terms of your business and leadership journey. I was uh, born in Kempton Park and I grew up there. Um, my father had a, a computer company and um, I was just triggered by computers. I remember my first computer was one of those uh, orange green ones. Yeah. And I taught myself how to code and I created this um a payroll system for his business. Okay. Um, and then I received a bursary to go study at uh, RIU, which is now obviously UJ. Yes. And um, just a little side note, I decided, no, I wanted to become a pastor, Ruti. Okay. So I actually, I went off to study a degree in theology. Um, but I realized during that time, it's not really a job I want to do full time. Um, so after that, I got back into technology um, and it's interesting for me how today, what I learned back then, especially regarding ethics and philosophy, yes. how it's in a way coming full circle back to the AI work that I'm doing at the moment. Um, I, start, I worked at a number of, of technology consulting firms, and then about eight years ago, I worked at NetBank, and we did a, a proof of concept with a global consulting firm on artificial intelligence. Okay. And up until then, I was not really too interested. I didn't really know much about it. But it blew me away what this technology can do. In that same year, I also became a father of an adopted son. He was a year and a half old when he was adopted. And for some reason, something clicked in me, this powerful technology and the future of my son. Okay. And uh, a lot of the work I've been doing is around that future trends, how, especially from a South African perspective on our own unique challenges, uh, which we'll unpack today in our regulation and so forth. Um, and then I worked at Accenture and at PwC, and about a year and a half ago, uh, a number of things came together for me to start my own business. So I do academic work, uh, course creation, course delivery kind of work. I do a lot of speaking uh, these days, about two to three times a week at conferences, and then a lot of writing for Business Day and some other publications, and I still do some consulting work around AI strategy, automation strategy, but I am ultimately a father worried about the future of my child and our children uh, and where this technology might take us. So I guess that's in a nutshell 
but more about me. Thank you so much. You know, um, a very interesting background there, and 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 maybe you know, very key that you've also worked for big institutions, and sometimes which is quite useful. You know, before you go and start your own business, you know, where you just get to learn from these big institutions as well. Uh, not that we must retire in those institutions, you know, because people sometimes think if you are working for a great, you know, uh, whether it's an audit firm or whether it's big financial institutions in a bank, you know, you must just be comfortable and 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 retire. And I guess now, you know, what you are doing gives you space, you know, I mean, to sort of like influence quite a lot of people, you know, beyond just your clients, you know, who are your paying clients, uh, the speaking engagement, the writing that you do for business day. Uh, so well done in terms of that. But just before, again, we, we get to the, you know, actual interview, let's just get to understand what is artificial intelligence that people relate to as AI. You know, other people think it's some magic bullet. You know, sometimes in my own understanding, I say, you know, it's just statistics that have gone really big, you know, but one can take away the fact that, you know, it has achieved quite a lot of things that no one predicted. But in your own understanding, and, and, and I know that sometimes you try and simplify this thing, what is artificial intelligence? It's such an important question because it's a hugely misunderstood ecosystem of technologies. So firstly, it's not a, a individual kind of technology. It's a whole number of technologies working together. Look, the idea of AI has been around for about 60 or so odd years. Only in the recent years with our increased computing power, cloud computing and the like, did it really become mainstream. And for most of us, we use it every day. If you have a smartphone, if you use Google Maps or Waze, if you use um, Siri or Alexa, I would say about 80 to maybe 90% of the apps on your smartphone is AI driven. It is essentially algorithms yeah. that can mimic human intelligence and decision making. On the one hand, it is the most powerful technology we've ever created. On the other hand, it's still much more limited than most people think. A lot of our ideas about AI comes from the movies. Killer robots, drones, um, a lot of our fear around job displacement, which is a relevant fear, yeah. is that this uh, mechanical robot's going to come down the aisle and sit at my desk. Yes. Um, and one of the problems uh, that I find with the clients I consult to is that they overestimate what AI can do for their business. And a lot of what I do is to try and dumb it down a bit so that they can understand there's still many, many things that only humans can do. Yes. And that technology at this stage cannot do. Um, uh, my father, about a year ago, asked me, what is this AI stuff that I'm doing? And I really struggled to explain it to him because, you know, when you work in this field, like in other fields, you use a lot of lingo, yes. like machine learning and Internet of Things and cloud. And, and he's not a stupid man, but he's not a technologist. So I had to figure out how to explain it to him. And, and I, I found a, a simple, very simple way, which I'll, I'll share with you and the listeners now, that in a, in a basic way explains what it is. And what I say is, is, you know, when we as humans do work, there is fundamentally four things that we do. Okay. Uh, we can see or read. In other words, we can read an instruction or a client request, for an example. Yeah. And then we can actually perform the work, execute the task that we've been given. That's number two. Number three is that we understand language and not just different languages, but we also understand nuances. So you can pick up in somebody's voice whether they're angry or frustrated or deceitful or happy. And then number four is, as humans, we keep on learning. And then I say, in a very simple way, 
AI technologies can do the same. It can see, and we call call that computer vision. Yeah. If you think of a self-driving car that recognizes a pedestrian or a stop street or something like facial recognition technology, but also a lot of technology that can extract um, meaning from documents. Yeah. And then AI technologies can perform the work. And here we talk about automation, uh, robotic process automation, which is not really AI, but we also talk about um, intelligent automation, so it's performing the work. Um, AI systems can understand language. Uh, if we think of contact centers, if we think of Siri and Alexa and Google yes. Home, um, and a lot of contact centers, they have AI bots now that can pick up whether your voice reveals your frustration, for instance. And then fourthly, these systems, if they're implemented correctly, keeps on learning from patterns itself, heals in a way, itself programs, which is a bit scary. And I just want to give you maybe one um, use case that I've worked on. And this is procure to pay which is a massive candidate for automation. If a client sends in an email requesting a quote, um, and you can extract what that email says. So the, firstly, is it is it a client? Is it a client in good standing? So you extract information from the email. You go to your accounting system or your CRM to verify, is this a client? Can we actually sell to them? Then it recognizes the products that the client's requesting. It looks at the, the warehouse, for instance, um, and your stock levels. If you have what we call an API agreement with an external vendor, you can even access their warehouse. And then you can determine um, when the product could be delivered. You look at weather patterns. You look at traffic patterns, depending on where the client wants it delivered. Um, you look at their master services agreement. Are there um, discount structures or penalties, etc.? Um, and a number of others, but and then essentially, and this what I'm talking about now can be done without human involvement at all, end to end. And then the system can create a quote and says that um, we actually have three units on stock. We've got four more arriving in five days. Um, shall we ship the three now, or shall we wait for all five? Um, it is, we estimate that it will take two days to deliver it. Um, in the case of retailers, for instance, they will give you a specific time slot to deliver the goods, and you can plan um, you know, accordingly. Your, accordingly. And then also you can say, but looking at your agreement, if you buy six and not five, we can give you all the units at a 10% discount. Um, and, so forth. and then the client can click on a button, say, process the order, and then the whole downstream fulfillment of that order can be done, all of what I've just said, can be done without any human involvement. That is an example of AI technologies in action. And I hope that that example and that four icons helps people to understand it a bit better. I, I think it will definitely assist, you know, and you have managed to break it down, you know, in a very nice way, um, Johan. But before we met, you know, I had you doing um, a talk, you know, uh, and and your input was tackled, you know, human-centered, you know, artificial intelligence. And for me, I found that very interesting as well, because you're not just looking at it from a tech point of view, uh, but you are seeing that human beings should still be at the center of this. Tell us a bit more in terms of that particular philosophy, if I may call it, or your approach. Um, and because you did emphasize that you always bring this, you know, when you're engaging with your clients as well. So tell us more about this human-centered uh, artificial intelligence. Glad you've asked me, uh, because I'm very passionate about this. Look, most of the discourse around technology, and especially artificial intelligence, is te technological. And of course, there's a place for it. But I don't see a lot of talks or articles around where do humans fit into this world of AI? 
Um, and when it comes to job displacements, uh, because that's a big f- relevant fear, yeah. especially for lower level administrative, repetitive workers. kind of workers, yes. yes. Um, and especially in our country with our unemployment rate. And, and you know, I read once that um, every person in South Africa on average looks after six to eight additional family members. So to, to get rid of 10 people because you're automating has got a much bigger downstream impact. And the challenge there is, of course, how do you balance your um, profitability, your your KPIs, your maybe your investors um, wanting certain returns yes. in a highly competitive world, but at the same time being ethical around people and the value of people. And, and that, that is difficult. But I think whenever we look at the technological um, implementation in our business, for instance, we ha- <clears throat> excuse me, we have to start with the business case. Yeah. Because what I find is people start with AI and then they're looking for a problem to solve with AI. Uh, sometimes you just need Excel to solve yeah. a certain problem. You know? yeah. Sometimes the problem is that people don't understand their jobs. The problem could be toxic leadership and so forth. And AI technology can't fix any of those things. And But then alongside the business case, you have to look at how will this impact my internal people, my, my, uh, my staff, yeah. and how will it impact the customers? And how do we take people on the journey? Because of course people fear it. Yes. And, and I think whenever a part of your workforce thinks that they might be losing their jobs, the resistance will be naturally great. Yes. Um, and, you know, maybe one example, if I can give you one, um, that really illustrates this point. About a year ago, uh, one of our large hospital groups asked me to help them around the automation of their front desks in the hospital. Okay. Quite a large hospital group, and I went to the head office here in Johannesburg. And when I walked into the boardroom, the execs were there, and there were three walls of whiteboards full of scribbling and planning and mind maps and stuff. Um, now, the, the front desk of a hospital, like a lot of your administrative functions in business, is highly automatable. You know, if you went to the hospital three months ago uh, or to your doctor, there's a good chance when you go again, you're going to have to fill in the same forms again. It's very manual. It's very um, unstructured, the, the data. And then I asked them, have you guys actually spoken to these people whose jobs you are planning to automate? And like most business leaders would, they said, no, we haven't. Um, and, you know, just on a side note, I like that television program, Undercover Boss. Yes, yes. It's essentially where they take the CEO yeah. uh, um, and they disguise him or her and, and they go work with the normal workers, say, on the factory floor. Yeah. And then they realize the challenges that people face. Yes. Because I think at an exec level, you often, the real problems are so filtered out in the reports and it's predominantly the good news and not the bad. Yes. Um, and then I said, if if you didn't speak to these people, which they haven't, I can't help you. And there were two main reasons. The one is you have to take people on the journey from the very beginning. But the, the biggest reason is that there is experience and knowledge in those people's heads that's been doing that job for five or 10 or 20 years that at exact level you can't even begin to imagine, yeah. which will result in you automating things that don't make an impact. And I always say automate the right things for the right reasons yes. in the right way. They gave me permission to sit down with 20 of these administrators over a very relaxed coffee. Um, we discussed some of their challenges, and there were challenges that technology could fix, like they had to access multiple systems, copy and paste data from spreadsheets into other systems. Okay. And there, a technology like RPA could help. Assist. But 
and I love this story and I almost always tell it when I speak at conferences. The biggest problem this team in this particular hospital had was that the printer was too far from them. And they told me that with every patient interaction, on average, they had to go to the printer three times. Sure. So my recommendation as a so-called AI expert was that they move the printer a bit closer. Closer to them. (laughs) Problem solved. Yeah. And so so what I often say when I speak or to my clients is, what is your bring the printer closer moment? In other words, forget about AI initially. Think of the common sense things that will help people. And you won't know it unless you spend time with those people. Some of the answers to those problems could be technological platforms. A lot of it could just be the environment's too noisy or we're sitting too far from something and so forth. So it should be human-centered and it should be a common-sense approach and it might not be AI that you need. Okay. So basically the message is that AI is not a solution to every problem that we might be experiencing in different organizations and businesses. So we need to still do the basic stuff, you know, and management and boards need to apply their minds, you know, before they get excited and say we just want to AI our organization. But the other one, Johan, if you may, you know, um, will you agree to say if organizations adopt AI too fast, they're more likely sometimes maybe to make mistakes, you know, along the way. Um, if you do agree, what is actually the best way, you know, of introducing AI into an organization, whether it's a small organization or a big organization? I think, look, any kind of technology that you do too quickly, that you implement and introduce too quickly, will give you problems. Because there's a good chance that as a leadership team, you haven't thought through the whole thing. Again, the impact on people, the impact on clients and so forth, on our operations. I think firstly, if you identify that AI is what you need, that's the first exercise because you might not need AI. You might just need automation or other initiatives or a bit more of a digitization exercise. But this is the kind of work I do with my clients is to, to help them get to the point of identifying that, yes, they might need AI. One of the big questions then is about the data. The data is like the fuel of the AI engine. And this is where almost every organization that I have been dealing with, whether they are big banks or smaller businesses, where they have problems. Their data, for instance, on their clients is very siloed. So for instance, your business banking team and your retail banking team and your home, home loans team might have different data sets on the same clients. So, so you have to make sure that the data is cleaned. You have to adhere to privacy regulations. In other words, you can only use the data that the clients gave you permission to use in profiling, etc. Um, and then you look. You have to start small, because if you you are most likely going to fail um, initially, and you have to fail quickly and with a small impact. Yeah. So, if a, if a small team says that we are really actually enjoying our jobs more now because some of the reporting stuff is being automated some of the 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 work that we hate doing is is done by robots now and we can focus on more important things then the word starts spreading through the organization Mm -hmm. but first the right business case um the right tools you know platforms like microsoft and others already have a lot of ai tools that's probably already covered by your licensing agreement and then you start small and you and you learn fast from your mistakes and you then build it out but not, I would say, across your whole business. There might only be, say, your finance area that needs it. And that comes back to the common sense business approach. And, and that's always my recommendation to clients. 
Okay, so an incremental approach, it's much better yes. than just trying to go, you know, the big way. Absolutely. Okay. In in your response, you just spoke about three things. You still refer to AI, then you spoke about digitalization, then you spoke about automation. Do you find that, you know, business leaders uh, use those words as interchangeable? Uh, do they sort of like mean the same thing yes. uh, or not necessarily? And, uh, you've, it's such a good point, uh, Tokuzani. What I often do when I start dealing with clients is to make sure we are on the same page. Yes. Because it's so easy to throw these terms around. Yeah. And I often joke, you know, I mean, I worked for some of the big consulting firms, but I, I tell my clients when the consultants come and visit you and they start throwing around these terms, stop them and ask them what they mean with machine learning yes. or Internet of Things. And often you will find they struggle because we don't always know what it is or can explain it in a simple way. But you're right, those three terms you've just mentioned is, and many more are used interchangeably. Um, so maybe just to quickly clarify, so for me, digitization or digitalization is obviously digitizing some of your business processes. Um, I often say, you know, we talk about a digital transformation. Yeah. But what I ask clients then is, you might have gone digital, but have you transformed? transformed. <laughs> because it, it doesn't mean that one is going to follow the other. You know? yeah. um, automation technology is not what I call thinking technology. It is almost like a slave in a way. You say, when this email comes into my previous example, you know, look at what products the clients are asking for, look at the database in the warehouse and so forth. But it's not a decisioning system or a learning system. It just follows the steps. Okay. Where AI technology and tools are learning tools, uh, pattern identifying tools, um, and, and they also automate, but they use automated decisioning. So you, so you set the perimeters, for instance, in the example I've used is, if you can see from the master services agreement there is a discount structure, yeah. then the algorithm within perimeters can make the decision to offer the discount to the client, for instance. So, no, I absolutely do that first. Is Let's just make sure that we're talking about the same things and, and the thing that I love doing with clients. Because of my work and my profile, that they will often bring me in and say, we want to use AI. Yeah. I will ask to do what? <laughs> and that's when the meeting becomes weird and yeah. they look at each other, but we've got a mandate from the top or we went to a conference and we're going to AI everything now. Yeah. Um, and then I asked them for the basic business process, explain, I, I did this with a HR team for an investment bank uh, a while ago, and uh, there were about 13 people in the room, and I said, on the whiteboard, very high level, what is your basic process? So identifying a need, um, recruiting, onboarding, you know, learning, learning and development, the whole life cycle. And what they discovered in that session is that none of them agreed on the basic steps and they started arguing about it. And then I started arguing about whose job is what. Yeah. And I stopped them. I said, people, you don't need AI. You need a process engineering exercise, but you also need a roles and responsibility definitions exercise, you know? So yeah. You have, and the other thing that I do is I, I like to say that let's agree that for this meeting, this hour meeting, no one is allowed to use any technological terms. No one can say AI, ML, whatever. But let's talk about your business problems. And you know how they struggle because they already made up their minds they need AI, AI. which is probably not the case. Yeah. You know, so you really, uh, what serves me, I'm often the dumbest person in the room. And it serves me well because I ask the stupid questions I feel that no one else wants to ask, you know. 
I think I'm seeing that human-centered, you know, AI approach coming throughout, you know, the way how you work with your clients and engage, you know, with, with different people that you engage with. Just staying with, with concepts in your hand, what are your thoughts on generative AI, gen AI, you know, and the risks that are associated with it? Look, it's obviously super topical. Um, you know, I often joke that you know up until chat gpt was released what's it now about a year ago i think november uh, many people didn't know what ai was or about or that ai existed and suddenly it became the talk of the town almost every newscast every newspaper every newsletter linkedin everywhere just chat gpt chat gpt so it was good because it brought it to the attention of the non-it people out there but it also created a lot of misconceptions because now everyone is an AI expert. Everyone wants to just chat GPT or BARD or, or Bing things. And it, those things are very helpful. You know, for about 50 to 80,000 years, we humans have been tool makers. Um, and it, the people have different views on, on our evolutionary history. But, you know, if once we as Homo sapiens, we started walking upright and we had the ability to use our hands and especially our thumbs we could create tools that would fashion the world around us. And a tool is a neutral thing, like a knife or a flint. I can either kill an animal to feed my family, or I can kill my neighbor in a dispute. AI is the same. It is a neutral technology, and it's about how we use it. The challenge is that it's very powerful, and it's increasingly becoming more powerful. I read a thing the other day that they reckon that generative AI tools will be about a thousand times more powerful in five years from now. But back to our evolutionary story, it's the first time in our human history that we have created a tool that can create tools by itself. And at this stage, we're talking about algorithms. So, you know, this generative um, era of AI, they create their own coding, um, correct coding and so forth. And it comes to a point where as developers, we don't understand how they've changed the code or, or can track the source code anymore. It'll also have an impact on what we call the cyber physical world, so 3D printing, for instance. So actually producing goods that we can touch and use on its own. So, so the potential for businesses and for education and healthcare is immense. But again, that neutral tool in the wrong hands is a problem. Um, I always tell my clients, don't use ChatGPT with sensitive data because you don't know where it goes. I mean, if you play around with it, for instance, if you have a spreadsheet, say a, a database of your staff, start date, um, um, gender, uh, salary scale, and so forth, and you just copy and paste that into ChatGPT and you ask for an analysis, it is incredible what it gives you. Yeah. But where does that data go? And we have, over the last few months, I think, if I remember correctly, there were three major breaches with OpenAI where concurrent users of the system could see each other online, if I remember correctly. There was also a breach in the payment details, so credit card information and so forth. So, so that's a problem. I think one of the biggest problems we have is around phishing attacks. So that's when you get an email that looks like it's coming from your partner or your CEO, you know, the same mannerisms. So for instance, your, your partner might always start an email with, hey honey, or how's a dude? Uh, or whatever and then that email is mimicked by generative ai that looks like it must be from that person and without even thinking twice you click on that link and there's a security breach um, there's a lot of use cases around generative ai and I'll, i can give you one example um, but clients again 
if you don't use Excel, don't try AI. And if you don't get AI right, don't even look at generative AI. It's that journey. But it, it is the era we are in. Our tools are now creating itself. And there's a lot of philosophical and ethical implications into our future for that. So as companies, Johan, deploy AI, then it becomes quite important to bring the element of safety, the element of privacy, the element of you know transparency as well. Will you agree? Absolutely. And transparency is important. And you know, we, we don't really have any regulatory frameworks across the world on, on AI. In the EU, and I think they've been working on it for three years now, they are looking at publishing what they call the AI Act. Okay. Um, and it, I think a lot of countries will most likely copy it because it's really well thought through. Okay. But one of the regulations stipulate that if, if, for instance, my bank has an automated credit decisioning system and I don't get that loan, or think of an employment system that makes an automated employment decision based on your resume, for instance, that as an individual, I have the right to dispute it and the company has to tell me how the machine got to that conclusion. And I think most businesses will struggle with that. Because, that. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like a human rights violation kind of a thing. Um, if you think of healthcare, I mean, if the hospital has an automated decisioning as to when I can take my sick son to the doctor, um, and, and this is where the biases come in, just because I'm of a certain gender or ethnicity, or I live on the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak, it gives me a slot only in four days where somebody else might get a slot within the hour. Uh, based on the biases, and I think that's hopefully a topic we, we can talk about, it's a massive problem, and it will become, because remember the internet is full, everyone who's ever used the internet will agree, it's just it's 99% nonsense, and then there's a lot of good stuff as well. Yeah. But all those, especially you know, historical biases, uh, one might even call it... Um, what is the word, colonial biases, are still built in into these systems. systems. And, that, and if you want to, I can give you a few few examples. But yeah, generative AI is is going to be problematic for us, I think. Yeah, P please, Johan, maybe just give us an example, you know, in terms of some of these biases, you know, um, because again, most of this technology tend to be developed, you know, in the developed economies, you yes. know, in the West, whether it's in Europe or in North America. Um, you know, how really are some of these things very relevant uh, into our context, especially the African context or, you know, the global South broadly? Yes. Uh, are they really these biases? You know, I mean, you've just given us an example in terms of um, a process where there's a recruitment, you know, for a particular position. Mm. Uh, as you're saying, you know, the internet has its own things. You know, you look for good images. Um, you hardly find, you know, people like, you know, myself, you know, uh, but you find a lot of, you know, um, the other races. So are those some of the concerns, you know, that probably in our African context, context you know, we should be, still worried about and, and hopefully the technology will improve and address some of these yeah, biases. It's such a good question. You know, I mean, we live in the fastest growing continent on earth from yeah. a population point of view. Yes. We have the youngest uh, population sure. as well. I think, you know, the business opportunities and, and of course there are many challenges on the African continent. But, you know, a lot of markets in the so-called global north are almost satisfied. Stagnant. And stagnant. So, if your growth opportunities will be in Africa, uh, I advocate that we need Africans to create technological solutions for Africa. And there's a number of examples I can give you. For instance, on natural language processing or say chatbots and the like. There's about 
two to three thousand languages and dialects on the African continent. Most of our chatbots are, because they come from the north, will be English or French or Portuguese or whatever, and they can be helpful. But what, what if you, if they say there's a lady, a mother in a rural area in Uganda, for instance, and one of those languages is maybe her fourth or fifth language, and she's got a, a good phone and a good um, internet connection maybe, but she needs to ask for healthcare advice on a sick child. How do you explain in a language that you're not familiar with what is wrong? And when that chatbot gives you maybe really good advice, but in a language that you don't understand, it, that's a problem. The other example is medical imagery. Um, you know, and I, I worked with a doctor who is doing amazing work in breast cancer. She's a professor at, at University of Pretoria, and she also runs a company where they use a handheld scanner connected to a mobile phone to do the breast scan because there's often not mammography equipment in, in these areas. That scan then, and this is where uh, image recognition comes in, it will compare that scan with, say, a million images, and it will give you an almost instant, very accurate diagnosis, and then they will obviously take that um, person through counseling and further medical advice. Same can be done sometimes with prostate cancer or lung cancer and others. But here's the challenge. There are nuances in African cases of breast cancer that you don't find in the global north. No. Um, and, and most of the medical imagery to compare that breast or prostate scan with comes from the global north. No. Even African-American women in the United States who might be sixth or seventh generation Americans have nuances in their cancers that you, that you don't find in the imagery. So languages and medical imagery, we have to create it ourselves for Africa. Um, the other story that I often tell. So my son, I said he's adopted. He's a mixed race, brown baby, yeah. beautiful boy, wonderful tan. You know, I, I joke with him often. I say, you know, I, I fell in the bleach when I was born, yeah. but you know, he's so beautiful. A few, a few months ago, I was helping him with a school project. And the title of the project was, um, Are Robots Our Friends? He's now uh, nine years old. So we started Googling robots, AI, yeah. and so forth. Almost all the images that comes back are of Caucasian-looking male robots. You very rarely will find a robot that's female-looking or that's non-Caucasian. And if you do, those robots are associated with service, house cleaning, um, laundry automation systems, etc. cetera. Okay. Um, and for instance, the university, I think it's Cambridge, I did a bit of work with them. Um, and, and if I remember correctly, their website is... Um, something like images for AI or something like that, I can't remember now. Okay. But where they are endeavoring creating images around AI and robots, that is inclusive. That's good. And if you use, and again, back to generative AI, something like DALL-E, which is another platform by OpenAI, ChatGPT, yeah. um, you get a number of these platforms where they call it text-to-image. So you, you put in a, a prompt like, draw me a painting in the style of Van Gogh about a leadership team. And it's a lot of fun to play with. But, and there's interesting statistics on this online. Most of the images that AI will create on, say, leadership will be of men and mostly Caucasian men. Most images on something that's, that's even slightly equal to weakness or submission or something will be of females and non-Caucasian females. And there's a, I wrote a piece in Business Day about this, that the narratives we are telling our children 
regarding what AI and technology is must change in Africa. Yeah. You know, for instance, globally, only about 3% of people going into AI-related careers like um, data engineering and so forth, only 3% are females. Because AI and technology is still largely seen as a man's world and as a white man's world. Yeah. So I think as Africans, um, and this is not even, this is not a racial or political discussion, it's just we have to be careful in how we just take other countries' technology and apply it to our children and to their future. And a lot of this we have to create. And maybe one last example when it comes to biases. You know, a lot of us, we, firstly, we all have biases. Um, most people don't even realize it. Yeah. And But if you ask me, so say a banking client says, we want to sell a product to a database of clients who are family units. So it could be like an educational product, finance product. If you ask me, write an algorithm that identifies potential family units in our customer base. My worldview of a family is, it's a man and a woman who may or may not be married and potentially with children. Children, yes. But then I need a colleague that says, but what about same-sex couples? Yes. What about people who don't want to have or can't have children? Children. What about single parents and so forth? So one of the key things when we implement this technology is, of course, we need the technology department or vendor, their expertise. But it must be a multidisciplinary core team. You need legal, you need organizational design people, change management people, and so forth. But you also need a diversity. You, yes. you do need the genders, you need uh, different age groups, different ethnicities, because that team together, so you'll never get 100% rid of biases in your data sets, but you can go very far if it is a diverse team that will, as the example I just used, I mean, it's not because I'm bad or I think single parents are bad, it's just my worldview. Mm -hmm. That's why we need more than just technical people um, and their different views when we implement this powerful technology. Oh, yeah, and I think that was so deep, you know, in terms of the way how you've explained these biases and the need to customize some of these technologies and tools, you know, into our own context. Yes, we must embrace them, but we also need to put them into our own perspective and, and context. And and just going back to the regulations and the regulatory environment, Johan, um, I don't know, do you have a sense in terms of if South Africa is moving to the right direction? Is our government, you know, paying attention uh, into this particular space? Do they even have the capacity, you know, to sort of like, you know, develop that regulatory environment that will also assist us? As you have said that the EU has taken a huge step forward yeah. in terms of, you know, creating those regulations. Imagine in the 1930s when we discovered we could split the atom. Yeah. If there was no regulation that followed that, you know, because again, like neutral technology, you can... You can provide electricity to a city, or you can bomb a Nagasaki. Um, powerful technology. Now we are sitting with even more powerful technology, maybe not in the physical sense like a nuclear bomb, but the impact on the population of, of Earth. And governments are dragging their feet, because I don't know if they are figuring out what it is. In South Africa, sadly, it doesn't seem to me that we are making any progress. I think it was about two years or so ago when we had the Presidential Commission on the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And they published in the Gazette, the Government Gazette, the, the report. 
And people like Prof Talitsi Mawala, who was at UJ then, and his team, they produced a world-class report with recommendations. If I remember correctly, there were nine main recommendations, including building AI infrastructure. Um, there's obviously an upskilling element regarding young people understanding this technology. There was um, the establishment of an AI institute. And there was also uh, the regulation that we need to progress on regulation. Challenge with regulation is it always follows innovation. You know, when we started driving cars, they realized we need seatbelts because people are dying. And, and also regulation can stifle innovation. And it's also difficult to enforce regulation. And if we think of just POPIA or our privacy legislation, which is world class. Yes. You know, over the last, was it two years or so, we've had major breaches with TransUnion, Transnet, Discam, and quite a few others. And I think in the next year, we will see even more. Um, POPIA says that you can be liable for a 10 million rand fine and or a 10-year prison sentence. None of those companies have been prosecuted yet. I was at a session where the, the regulator spoke and she said, obviously one of their challenges is taking a transunion to court. You know, the time it takes to prepare that case uh, and so forth. So if we can't even really get it right with privacy, how are we going to get it right with regulation? And how will we enforce it? I think something like what the EU is thinking about, the explainability of automated decisionings. I, as a banking client, I want to phone a net bank or a standard bank and say, why did you not approve my overdraft? Yeah. Was it an AI? And explain it to me, and so forth, and so forth. So I don't think we're going to see any progress in the years to come. And, and you know, the, I think our challenge is that our government is trying to keep the lights on. Yes. And they're dealing with other massive societal it's issues. issues. Yeah. Um, you know, the distributing electricity is a second industrial revolution thing. Uh, and <laughs> by the way, so is a reliable rail networks. Yes, yes. We have very little of it. Yeah. So I think we are dealing with so many second industrial revolution issues that there's not even thinking about 4IR. But having said that, organizations like the CSIR and others are making amazing progress, progress That's but, but it's quite isolated. Yeah. Um, and there are people in government doing really good work, but I think using this kind of technology for a large-scale benefit to our society, we are sadly very, very far away from that. Yeah. Because probably at some point, Johan, I mean, it's 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 um, a tool that even government can sort of like, you know, employ in terms of improving service delivery. You know, whether at a city level, you know, in the metropolitan areas, whether we're dealing with traffic and congestion issues. So it's something that even in the public sector, you know, it can be utilized. I think we've seen countries like your Singapore, they're, they're leading in terms of, you know, these technologies. Absolutely. And what they call is it, you know, the, the e-government kind of services, you know, especially for your home affairs and, and other services that we need. So hopefully at some point government will pay attention. Yeah, but no. you are also right, you know, I mean, we are dealing with issues of national crisis, you know, the energy, uh, the freight and logistics, you know, and crime as well. Yes. Know, things that are very, very important for this country that we need to address so that we can grow the economy, bring more people into, you know, the, the economy and create opportunities. And one, one example, if I can mention it, is the UIF uh, yeah. Employment Fund. They are, like similar initiatives, are doing very important work. Because there are people who claim they're one or two or five thousand rand a month, and without that, the children won't eat. Yeah. 
and but we've and we've seen in the news over the last few weeks the, the challenges they have, the corruption and so forth. A, a friend of mine recently had to claim, so she went to the Pretoria branch. You, you stand in a queue for hours. Suddenly it's tea time. Everyone leaves, and then it's lunch time, and then it's tea time again. It's quite a lack of job, it seems to me. Yeah. But you have to. And they do have an online system, but it, it's down most of the time. And also, when you actually get to the front of the queue, most of the time they'll say, our systems are down. And then you send in a document, which f from an e-filing perspective should be easy to automate. Yeah. In some cases, you have to physically take the document there. Why can't you just send it through e-filing? And you have to follow up, follow up, follow up. And the same is true for, for many other. So it's not even that government needs AI. Just They just need good digitization. Yeah. What, one example I heard where AI is doing something positive is if you take, say there's a new um, informal community that jumps up somewhere. Yeah. If you take drone or satellite images every day or every few days, you can actually see that where is this community moving? Are there new shacks in a certain direction? And then you can look at, is there, for instance, a um, one of these um, uh, mining dams that can, when they break, I mean, they just okay. flood and kill everyone. You can also look at, do we need to plan our um, services um, yeah. around potential electricity or, or waste collection, et cetera, differently. That sounds interesting. And you can automate a lot of that. Um, the challenge with AI for governments is what they can do with all the data they have on us that's not going to serve us. I often think, imagine the Nazis had AI, and imagine they had this kind of information that our governments have on us. Um, will it make a government more like what George Orwell wrote about in 1984, Big Brother? Yes. Um, you have to speak. If you, if you don't, if what you post online is not in agreement with the government of the day, yeah, you're in you trouble. Get, you're in trouble, you get penalized, again, access to healthcare and credit. That's already a reality in China, for instance. Yeah. If you... And also, what is a government's sole um, priority? It's to stay in government. Think of it. It's not necessarily serving the people, people. across the world. Never thought about it from that perspective. Because right? since, yeah. since you are elected, everything you do is to try and win the next election. Sure. Now imagine again, if you have this data on people that you can use for um, bad in bad ways, yeah. um, it, it can be troubling. But... Again, the good that government can do with it. Uh, for instance, looking at predicting natural disasters That's like we had in KZN, KZN yes. etc. Looking at weather patterns, infrastructure. Our okay. and, and we have enough experts in government and private sector and in universities in this country for that the government. That can work together. Yes. To, to But I don't know if government's really pulling in that expertise, sadly. I hope at some point they'll start building that capacity and pulling those expertise together. Johan, I've got two questions um, before we end our interview. I just want to go back to that, you know, fear, uh, especially from semi-skilled, unskilled workers of AI. How do we strike this balance, you know, especially as business owners and entrepreneurs? You want to be competitive, uh, but, you know, how do you sort of like, you know, mitigate that negative impact on your workers? You know, how do you normally advise your clients in terms of justice? And I know it's a complicated one, but yeah, you know, a lot of people still fear AI in terms of, you know, to say it's too much automation, they're going to lose their jobs. How do we deal with that one? It is a very complex issue. And again, think of you're a CEO or on the board of a business. I mean, every little 0.1% of market share growth, of profitability growth is something. Yeah. 
and and maybe and think of the banks for instance i think our banks are so in a way overstaffed if you think of our branches if i think of our i mean some of our banks their cost to income ratio is like 70 percent, for instance and then we have these digital entrants that's got a very low uh, kind of a similar percentage again back to just remember sometimes people can just do the job better than computers especially when it comes to customer facing you know we can automate a lot of our custom facing engagements like if i ask my bank um how do i increase my overdraft that can be very automated but if i need advice and if i need an empathetic ear to guide me a chatbot can't do that yeah. you know i always say if i wake up tomorrow and my bank account is empty now that's normally about on the fifth of the month but <laughs> in any case but so, say you were breached yeah I don't want to speak to a contact center agent. I don't want to speak to a chatbot. I want to go to the branch and stand there until they sort it out. Again, those, and, and you know what's interesting? I want to really encourage people. There's a new biography on Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson. Okay. Uh, Isaacson wrote the biography on Steve Jobs and others. He's a brilliant writer. And th this biography on Elon Musk was released, I think, in the last month. And he had unlimited access for two years to Elon Musk and his family and his enemies he followed him around, and also they had an agreement that Musk cannot approve the manuscript. Wow. And he, he only saw the manuscript when the book came out, but it's Published. a great book. Um, I'm a big fan of Elon Musk, although he seems to be one of the most horrible people to work for, how he <laughs> manages people, but he's also brilliant. Yeah. And there's, a, there's an interesting story about what he calls de-automization. Okay. And, and they saw on, on the factory floor in Tesla, in one of the factories the, where they produced the electric cars, there's a very expensive robot, and, and I'm most likely not going to get all the facts right now, but there's a very expensive robot that's quite slow, and it has to uh, tighten a bolt or something in the car. Okay. And then Elon Musk asked his team, but just give me a tool, and he tried to do it, and he realized that he can do it a lot more accurate and quicker than the robot. The robot. And then on that specific part of the assembly line, they de-automated. They took the robots away and employed oh, more people to do it. So do and, and what he says is, he says, first, I automated too quickly because he wanted to automate everything. And there is just some things that it is cheaper and quicker for a human to do. Uh, for instance, if we talk about robotic process automation, you know, those licenses, you can easily pay a million rand for a license. If you use that robot correctly, it can bring amazing benefits to your business. Sometimes it's just better to employ three people at 30,000 rand a month to do that job than the robot, as an example. Yeah. And it comes back to that human-centered, common-sense approach. Yes. But the point is, as we go into the future, more and more of jobs will be automated. We're now even at a point where it's not just your very administrative work, it's even your thought leadership, thinking work, consulting kind of work that can be automated. I see that uh, PwC and some of the audit firms are now looking at bringing more and more AI into the audits, and there's a huge benefit to that. But what do they now do with the typically 40 auditors they would have had on an audit, if they only need three now? as an example. This topic will not go away. The, the other author that I like is somebody called Yuval Noah Harari. Um, he wrote books like Sapiens, um, Homo Deus, uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Um, I also, and there's others like Nick Bostrom. I, I like the fact that more and more of the AI discourse is not by technologists, but by historians and philosophers, because they bring a very important angle. Perspective, yeah. And Harari says, and I think it's in Sapiens, that given the rate of automation over the next few years, we might create across the world what he calls a, a useless class of people. So 
it's not that you can upskill yourself anymore. Uh, it might be too late because you might be five years away from retirement, for instance. Yes. Or it might just be that you just don't have that acumen or technical understanding. Yes. So, you know, clients often will tell me when they speak about automation, don't worry, we're just going to upskill people. And I say, hang on a second, it's not that easy. Yes. Some people are not upskillable. And it's not necessarily about intellect. It's because they don't want to do it. They've done this job for 30 years. They want to keep on doing it. Yes. So I think... I don't really have an answer for you, but I think as long as we grapple with it and as long as we keep on understanding that there's certain things, quite a lot actually, that technology can't do. That, that, that will still require human beings. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Johan, um, I think we are just running out of time, but thank you so much for coming through and for sharing with us your insights. Um, in fact, I think I might even call this conversation AI 101, you know. I think you've educated quite a lot of us and I'm hoping that our listeners will take quite a lot out of this conversation and be able to bring such, you know, a very important, you know, topic on AI uh, to their own business operations. We really appreciate your time and your insight and we really wish you all the best in terms of what you do and especially, you know, keep pushing this human-centered approach for AI. I think it's quite uh, important. It's been a great honor. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Johan. Until our next episode, you take care. Cheers. Bye-bye.